Here's today's reminder. If your church is going to grow, you have to equip your leaders. But how do you do this? How do you empower the leaders at your church to lead well? Join us at equiplab.com backslash church leaders. We're here to equip your ministry team to thrive. Just go to equiplab.com backslash church leaders and join us today. Hello and welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Day. Today we are talking about the subject of Christian nationalism, a term that has been in the news and on the minds of many after the January 6th Capitol riot. So what is Christian nationalism and how do we address it in our churches? We're going to look at the topic from a sociological, theological, and pastoral perspective. You'll likely hear information and insights you haven't heard before. You might not agree with all of it, but after listening to all four episodes of this series, you'll definitely be more informed and better equipped to help your congregation approach Christian nationalism from a Christ-centered perspective. For those of you new to the Church Leaders Podcast, our goal is to help those working in churches lead better every day. Each season of our podcast explores a topic the church is grappling with. Listen as thought leaders, theologians, and pastors offer their insights on the most pertinent discussions happening in churches today. If you enjoy the Church Leaders Podcast, please leave us a review. Your reviews and ratings help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content as well. And now, allow me to introduce our guest. Welcome to the Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now podcasting from scenic Colorado Springs, Colorado, here's your host, Jason Day. Dr. Timothy Keller joins me for this episode. Tim is the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, which he started in 1989 and grew to exceed 5,000 in weekly attendance. He's also the chairman and co-founder of Redeemer City to City, which starts new churches in New York and other global cities. Tim is a New York Times bestselling author whose books have sold over 2 million copies and been translated into 25 languages. His latest is entitled Hope in Times of Fear and is being released in early March 2021. Now in this episode, Tim and I discuss the differences between healthy patriotism and potentially idolatrous nationalism. Tim shares caution from the writings of C.S. Lewis about the dangers of nationalism and also encourages pastors on how they can faithfully shepherd in the midst of the rise of Christian nationalism. Such wisdom from an amazing pastor and leader. So please, won't you join me in my conversation with Tim Keller. Hello, Tim. Welcome back to the Church Leaders Podcast. When was I on last? But I'm glad to be back. Yes, you. I think you were with us last year at some point. Okay. So um, I, I, it was probably pre-COVID. So everything, you know, it's, it seems like it's been five years, right? <laughs> since since uh, that's true. Uh, it's it, impossible to believe it really started about a year ago. Exactly. It's, it's, it's really you say what it just <laughs> was it only a year? Yeah. Right. Right. It, it feels right. like forever, uh, Tim. Uh, a, f- a few years ago, pre-COVID, uh, you released a book entitled The Prodigal Prophet, Jonah and the Mystery of God's Mercy. Right. And, and you wrote about how the book of Jonah is, among other things, a, a rebuke against nationalism. Yeah. Can you give us a brief recap of, of that message? Well, in some, first of all, the, uh, there's a place in the book where I actually um, uh, do a, a fairly extensive quote of, uh, from C.S. Lewis. In his book, The Four Loves, um, the, the, most people, when you read his book on The Four Loves, he takes uh, four Greek words, and um, each one is a different word for love. And almost everybody looks at 
eros, you know, what he says about sex. <laughs> and they also hit philos, what he says about friendship. Those are the most famous parts of the book. But the very first book, uh, pardon me, the first chapter is a, is a not a very well-known Greek word called storge. And storge actually means affection, which you can have for non-personal objects. So you can, have, you can have affection for animals. I mean, a real love for animals. You can have an, uh, an a love for a place. And then he moves on and said, what does it mean to love your nation? And what's intriguing there is he says, well, at the first level, to love your nation, to prefer your nation's landscape, to prefer your nation's, you know, many things, music and, and, and food and, and sights and sounds, and maybe, uh, you know, some of the cultural differences that you, you know, you're a bit, you're sort of a stiff upper lip Brit and you kind of like that, that sort of thing. He says, that's perfectly good to prefer it, to love it, to revel in it. But then he says, stage two, he says, when does it become an idol and eventually a demon because he's writing not long after World War II. And he, he says, it's very clear after World War II that love of country can become demonic, you know, which is what happened in Germany when right. you know, love of country became racist, a demonic thing. And so he said, interestingly enough, the very first sign that you are um, uh, moving into idolatry of your country is when you whitewash, that's his term, your history. And you just look away from the bad things and you don't, you don't admit that they happen. He says, he says, now the fact is that, you know, as a Christian, he says, every, every nation has fallen, it's filled with sinners and there's going to be terrible things in everybody's history. So he says, uh, that's the first stage. And then of course, this next stage is when you actually start to um, ostracize uh, and put, create second class citizenship for people who don't fit your your, um, uh, your ideal of what a British person is. And then he said, the fourth, of course, is where you actually, you know, you, you inter people like, you know, you know, you kill people anyway. So he moved on. And what's scary to me, actually, and I guess I mentioned that is, we are moving somewhat toward that uh, in this country. There are people who feel like to be a patriot means I don't want to hear bad things about my country's past. I don't want to hear about Jim Crow laws and slavery and stuff like that. That was in the past. We got over it. It's it's okay now. They don't like they don't like being told about anything about their history. They, I really see the, the first steps there, and it's not good. That's all. So he was trying to say, on the one hand, the I I do think some Americans by the super left woke crowd are being told you must be ashamed of everything about the history of America, which is you can't you can't have a country. <laughs> for people without having something to take pride in in your own people. But on the other hand, there's um, the right wing is, is, is creating a kind of Christian na nation narrative in which we were actually, we almost were like the chosen people and God made us a Christian nation and we we're going to show the world we're the redeemer nation for the world. And we've got to get back to God. And uh, it's exactly what, what Edwards talked about. So it's, it's worrying. Uh, we're a long way. I don't, frankly, we're not, we're not, rounding up people and putting them in internment camps. But you might say, well, yeah, they are at the border. Well, of course, both Democrats and Republicans, you know, have worked on that. I don't think we're there, but it's it's a worrisome. Yeah. So, so Tim, um, how have you seen evangelical church leaders actually buy into this nationalist agenda? Well, there's a good book. It's not written by, well, I'm not saying they're not Christians. It's two sociologists. They're certainly not writing as Christians, okay? Um, I don't know about them personally at all, but a book by, uh, that, 
the the, uh, the the authors are named their first and their their last names are Perry and Whitehead. Yes. And they wrote the book uh, "Taking America Back for God." Now, what's great about the book is it really is trying so hard, and it, I think it succeeds at being truly social scientific and not having an agenda. So, on the one hand, they say a lot of things there that should really alarm a lot of evangelicals. They say Christian nationalism whitewashes the past. Uh, it it also puts more of a premium on just people being religious and going to church more so than really understanding what it means to be born again and regenerate. One of the worst things about it is it said it's getting it, it basically says if you're if you're a Muslim, you can't be an American. Mm. The hint is if you're a Jew, you can't be American. It's it's fusing Christianity with relig- with, with American identity. Mm hmm. And what that leads to is uh, my country right or wrong, which of course is not a biblical position. You know, there, there's no, your country has to be critiqued for sin like any other country. It also leads to the idea that we're kind of a special country and nobody else is like us. I think since the coming of Christ, God doesn't do that anymore. He doesn't have a chosen people in the same way. Uh, by the way, I'm not knocking Ju- Judaism at all here. I'm just saying the Bible says, I mean, in the New Testament, is that now God works through the church in every country in the world. He doesn't prefer one particular country. On the other hand, you know, and so uh, it's it's very, um, uh, Christian nationalism is on the one hand, something that probably 30 or 40% of people who self-identify as evangelicals are participating in, according to this book. The idea of fusing Americanism with Christianity, looking down on non religious people, I mean, non-religious and non-Christian people as not really American, not trying in any way to win them, but just, just vilify them. That's just, there's no evangelistic nerve there. No concern. How do I persuade? Right. Uh, It's very caustic. So a, but on the other hand, here's what he says. Interesting. He says, this is not, he says, Christian nationalism is not just evangelicals or Mm -hmm. white evangelicals. He says Christian nationalists are actually recruiting white evangelicals because a lot of Christian nationalists are not believers of, at all. They, they, they're still big on Christianity because they're trying to retain the idea of a kind of white Christian American past. And even though they don't go to church, may not even believe, they, they said there's a lot of secular Christian nationalist believers. Right, right. It, it's more like, in some ways, evangelical theology is not so much really affecting Christian nationalism. Christian nationalism is recruiting in a major way from evangelicals and using us. So, uh, and the other interesting thing he says is the more often a person says, I study my Bible and pray, the less likely they are to be Christian nationalists, which is very interesting. Yeah. It's not so much tied to church attendance, though there are indications that older evangelicals do not attend church as much as younger ones. Because older ones tend to just feel like, well, I'm, this is my people and I'm part of this. And it's more like a civil religion. Oh, of course, I'm evangelical. I don't go to church that much. But yes, 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 I'm born again. Younger people know that if you're born again evangelical, you're out of step with your generation. Mm. And so they're much more likely to be studying their Bible, trying to work things out theologically. Older evangelicals think of themselves as part of a kind of Christian past America. And, and therefore, they're more susceptible to Christian nationalism. So it's a really fascinating book. Uh, I feel like it really succeeds at being uh, very um, nuanced and and, uh, and balanced. Yeah, I, th- I think it's an excellent book. I had the opportunity to read it myself. And in fact, in this this series, this podcast series, I interviewed Perry 
um, about the book. And he is a believer and fascinating things that, that he and Whitehead uncovered in, in their research and their study. As we're looking at the evangelical church specifically, do, do you see a correlation between support for President Trump and Christian nationalism? Some. Yeah. I think, I think they say the same thing too. But see, they, what they try to do, and you know, this book just came out last year. So they were writing this book during the Trump era. They, they didn't write it you know, it, they, they didn't know what was going to happen with the election, but um, they they tried to say the same thing that uh, you can't just say all Trump supporters are Christian nationalists, all evangelicals are Christian nationalists, which is what the newspapers give you the impression mm-hmm. that it's all it's all the same. He says, no, it's over. It's sort of like three overlapping circles. And and and, and you know what? Even evangelicals, I would say, for example, there are a lot of African-American and Hispanic and Asian folks who are religious or Christians who vote for Trump. Mm-hmm. You know, people don't realize, for example, the Dominicans uh, largely vote for Trump. Um, and yet Dominicans tend to be poor and they, they've also experienced racism, but they are, uh, they're, they're very negative about the progressive secular side because they, as religious people, they are family oriented. You know, they do not like, they don't like this, the real liberal stuff on sex and gender. Uh, they're very concerned about uh, government control of your thought and, you know, and cancel culture. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those folks have voted for Trump. Are they Christian nationalists? No way. No way. Forgive me for a joke. No way, Jose. Right. Sorry about the joke. I couldn't help it. I'm, <laughs> on a, I'm entering my anecdotage now, you know, which means <laughs> when you get to a certain age, you can't stop. Um, they are not Christian nationalists. They do not have this un- I, this ideal of the past white, you know, you know, white Christian past. Uh, they want to be included, but they are also religious people, and they don't like the left, frankly. So they, they were they were kind of coming in and voting for Trump in spite of a lot of things. So you that's the reason why Trump voters and uh, you know most most people on the left think any non-white people who voted for Trump were just dupes mm. that they got they got taken in. No, you talk to them, they they don't like a lot of things in the in the other in the other candidate. I mean, they're not dupes. And yet, that, so I would say one of the three circles is definitely Christian nationalists. And did they all vote for Trump? Probably every single one. Mm-hmm. But that's not the same thing as all white evangelicals. Uh, it's certainly not the same thing as all evangelicals. So anyway, yeah, there we are. It's just, I liked how they complexified it. I think that's fair. Right. Yeah, no, that's good. Tim, it's, it's it kind of on the same vein. It's no secret that the evangelical church particularly the white evangelical church has championed the Republican Party for, for, for several years now, yeah. um, almost to the point where some Christian leaders are concerned that evangelical kind of that term equates to voting Republican. Right. Like if you aren't voting Republican, then you can't call yourself an evangelical. Um, do you feel that this alliance has somehow contributed to the rise in Christian nationalism, uh, nationalistic kind of thinking within the church? Well, it, it gave it a place where it could incubate. I mean, I, I, I like to be I'm trying to be fair here. Um, first, by the way, I, I thought you were going to ask me a question. Maybe maybe you will in a minute. So I mean, I may be taking this away. I'll tell you the answer to the question. You maybe wouldn't. Have put it. I thought <laughs> you were going to say that identification of evangelicals with Republicans because it led to a decline in the church. You know, people walking away from the church. I think absolutely amongst younger people. Mm-hmm. I was actually going to say. The reason why the place in the whole world where the church is weakest is Europe. In the whole world. I'd even say it's weaker 
some ways in Europe than it is in the Middle East, I mean, well, is because every one of the European uh, countries had a state church. In other words, they say, we're a Christian country. So because you're Norwegian, you're Lutheran, because you're Scottish, you're Presbyterian, because you're Polish, you're Catholic, see? Mm-hmm. And whenever that happens, when in other words, when the church is seen as basically the, you might say, the handmaiden of the people in power, it always loses credibility. People start saying it's really not talking about spiritual issues. It's talking about, it's basically about power, just basically about keeping people in power. And anybody who, the, they, they just lost the working classes. They just lost, they lost the people who felt on the outside. They just walked away. They felt like this is for insiders. Now, whether, I don't think actually Republicans are insiders anymore. I think because they've lost the academy and the media and all that. I, I think when younger people think of Republicans as the people in power with all the money, I think that's a mistake. But they are doing the very same thing that happened in Europe. They're walking because they see that the evangelical church is basically just another, uh, you might say, handmaiden to power. And so it has hurt us now uh, very much. On the other hand, your question had more to do with, um, you know, that over that identification of republicanism. You said, is it what now you said, it, does that lead to has it contributed to the rise in kind of Christian, in, in nationalism? Christian nationalism? Yeah, because yeah. because it, it gave uh, Christian nationalism works on fear and resentment. It's what Nietzsche said is see Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche said there is no truth. So you can't appeal to truth. You, you appeal to is fear and resentment. And that's how you get power and that's how you win. That's how you do it. You don't appeal to truth and all that. Because frankly, when you appeal to truth, that makes people civil and nice and kind and all that. And nobody, those people never win. You need to be people who are just ready to, they're just, they're, they're, you know, they're angry and they're fear and they're going to vote for you and all that. And it's true. The fact is that I would say for the last 20 years, the Christian right, Though I usually would agree with their positions, I'm pro-life. You know, in other words, I, I, you know, did not. I still don't think that same-sex marriage is a good idea for for the country or people. Um. So, so I would technically be in, you know, agreeing with them. But you know how they raise their money for for twenty years? They sent out letters talking about how you've got to send us money because the. The, the, the gay people are going to try to come and take your children away and because they're evil and because uh, and because, uh, you know, the Democrats and the left are going to destroy your religious liberty. They just they just said awful things and vilified people. It's one of the reasons why so many gay activists now just don't want to forgive evangelicals, because when they were had a little more power in the 80s and 90s, that's how they raised their money. That's how they got people out. And weirdly enough, that's not the Christian way at all. The Christian way at all is is you know, the way up is down. The way to rule is to serve. This is how Jesus did it. The way to, uh, to, to get happy is to not think about your own happiness, but the happiness of others. You know, the way, the way to get any influence is to empty yourself and be a servant. That's Jesus way. And, um, they're not doing that. They're actually using the Nietzschean way. And, um, I think what that did was by, by, for a long time, just keeping evangelicals frothing at the mouth about how everything is going so bad and making everybody so angry. By the way, things are getting bad for evangelicals. It's very possible. I, I am not in denial about the fact that 10 years from now, if you have evangelical convictions about sex and gender, you may not be able to work for a major university or for the government or for a big corporation. 
And uh, it's not that it's not that Christians haven't faced that other places and in the past. We shouldn't be crybabies. Nevertheless, having said all that, yeah, it, we, we nurtured this, and Christian nationalists use that, and therefore um, we brought it on ourselves. Even though I agree with Perry and Whitehead that in many ways the Christian nationalists are are kind of using us, not so much we we. Evangelicals are not all Christian nationalists, but they are using us. They're recruiting very well because mm-hmm. we made we made a lot of our people recruitable. Yeah, Tim, from from a pastor's perspective, how do how do you begin to steer your congregation away from falling into the idolatry of Christian nationalism? Yeah, right now um, m- m- there are a few churches that are smack in the middle. Most evangelical churches in the cities with a lot of young um, young uh, evangelicals, almost have a tendency to be so overwoke <laughs> and basically kind of taking their cues more from, from the secular world and, and actually talking about Christian nationalists in, a, in the most nasty ways. Mm-hmm. It is dangerous, but it's also, um, it's one of the ways that you fuel extremism is by treating the extremists as, a, as sort of subhuman. And uh, on the other hand, I'd say most evangelical churches away from cities, and especially in the South, a lot of them in the Midwest, they are, um, they're unhappy because their minister isn't, isn't denouncing the left enough and isn't, isn't telling people they need to vote for Trump. Uh, so when I talk to evangelical pastors, they're either being, people are actually leaving their churches, either because they don't talk about justice and about um, how bad Trump is or how bad Christian nationalism, they don't that they're not preaching enough about it. They're actually just staying with a biblical text and very often not even mentioning it, just talking about Jesus and now you have to be born again. And I don't like that. On the other hand, I'd say probably a bigger number of evangelicals are mad at their ministers because they're not, uh, they're not telling people how dangerous things are and you have to vote for Trump and we got to get behind this, this, this movement. And they're very upset and people are just walking away. Um, Especially right before the election. I, I talked to a bundle of younger they're not young, young. I mean, like PCA pastors, my denomination in right. their 40s, by and large. And almost all of them had churches in the South or the Midwest or the West. And every one of them, because they would not come out. I mean, Kevin DeYoung, for example, at, at Christ, it's a PCA church in Charlotte, big church. He got, they all got heat to say, you've got to come out and tell people you have to vote for Trump. You've got to turn out the vote. And most of those pastors that I know of said, it's the Bible doesn't tell you exactly who to vote for. I can't do that. You know, the Westminster Confession, which is our confession, actually says you mustn't bind people's consciences where the Bible hasn't spoken directly. Um, yeah, I, I can make I could make a very good argument for why a Christian ought to vote as a Republican. I could make an argument, but that's not the same as to tell them their minister as if it's like this is like what the Bible says and bind their conscience. No, you can't. And they got a lot of prop. They got a lot of flack. What I've tried to say to people is they may, those folks may be back. You just cannot, you have to be loving and kind, extraordinarily Jesus-y with them. And they may be back later because I'm hoping the extremism and the, and the kind of uh, almost the craziness on both sides will die down as time goes on. I don't know. Right. I'm, ho- I'm saying you just can't, um, you can't give in. You just can't let that happen. 
besides that, if you give in to one side, you'll lose people from the other side anyway. If you want to be, you might as well be principled because, because pragmatism won't work. <laughs> so you might as well get, you know, lose money and members over something that's where you feel like I'm just following Christ here. I'm following real good principle. Because right. if you try to avoid losing members and um, money too much, you probably end up losing them anyway and then have a bad conscience too. Yeah, no, that, no, that's good. Uh, earlier, Tim, you you uh, touched on patriotism just a bit. Yeah. Um, where where is the line really between patriotism and nationalism? You know, in other words, how can we be Christ followers first, who are appreciative, who are supportive of the United States, but who do not devolve into idolatry? Yeah, well, I would go back to uh, Lewis. He doesn't use the word patriot, but what he's trying to say is to is to really love and prefer. No, not prefer in the sense of saying, I feel like not only do I love my country and its uniquenesses, but I actually do see that, uh, you know, I see all the advantages of it. I, I know that's not for everybody, but actually I, I, I want us to be different in the way we have been. Uh, and I think Lewis gives you, know, that would be patriotism to say, I'm very proud of my country in many ways. I'm not making excuses for its sins, but I'm very proud of it. And I, I want us to hold on to many of the distinctives and not feel like it's all trash. It's all terrible. We have to throw, we have basically have to tear down every statue, <laughs> every single statue, because anything that happened before 2010 was really <laughs> all crap. <laughs> and so, no, there was, I live in New York, brother. Yeah. <laughs> and so if you, if you live in New York or, you know, maybe the Bay area, you you say um, that people do talk like that a lot, a lot. And you wonder, is that going to spread everywhere or not? If it does, I think it is going to create some massive vision because it, it, is, it is definitely not trying to bring along more conservative people. It's just vilifying them. And that's just fueling the movement, the Christian nationalist movement. So to be a patriot is to love your country, be proud of your country. And actually be allowed to say it's distinctives or things we're going to hold on to because we really think it makes the contribution of the world. And I want to live in a place like this and not feel like I've got to, um, you know, I not, not feel like I have to reject my whole past. But on the other hand, as soon as you start to whitewash your history, uh, basically creates first and second class Americans. You know, it's one thing if you're in Germany or France, I don't know. Maybe you say, sorry, you can't be a Frenchman. If you move here, it takes 30 years. I mean, they're going to have to work that thing out. But America's never been like that. Never. That was what was unique about us. The minute you get here, you're an American. It's always been like that. And see, the Christian nationalist movement in some ways is not true to what I love about America. Hmm. My patriotic Tim Keller was the fact that the minute you hit here, it didn't matter your race, your class, your background, whatever, you were an American. Because there wasn't anybody here besides the native americans which you mistreated that's another story <laughs> nevertheless the point was you didn't have people here who were saying well you're not a real american i mean actually the native americans could have done that <laughs> but we're not allowed to do that you can't come here as a presbyterian you know and 10 years later say oh you're a baptist you're not a real american sorry you weren't you just got mm -hmm. here 10 years ago. so it's not the christian nationals are not really being true here, by the way here's a here's a a, a couple of if you talk to Perry, you know this, but here's my test. If you say, oh, I don't want to, I want churches to be built in my city, but I don't want a mosque to be built in my city. I'm going to, I'm going to ask the government to block it. That is very un-American, 
that is a real sign that you're a Christian nationalist. Mm. Okay. Yep. Think about it because that's really not the way America was started at all. And one of the reasons why Christianity has flourished here was because there wasn't a state religion and everybody had to go out and compete as it were. And it flourished. They Christianity has flourished here because it wasn't supported by the state. And, and we didn't knock down other people who, you know, were, well, okay. In other words, we made room for Jews. We need to make room for Muslims. We need to make room for Buddhists. And we have to make room for secular people. Because that's how America always has been. Because that doesn't sound like it. And of course, as you know, brother, when I, if I say anything like that, I'm, I'm you know, getting close. I, I don't mind being a lightning rod for the Christian nationalists, but they are, they, they, they hover around my social media stuff just to, <laughs> to be critical. And I, I understand why they want to do that because I represent something that they really want to eliminate. Right. Which is something they, they would want to say, if you're not with us, then you are a left-wing Marxist. And there's really nothing in the middle because see, that's the only way they can recruit. So if you and I do this podcast, we're public enemy number one for Christian nationalism right. because we're sounding, we're sounding so reasonable and, we're willing to criticize the left and we don't go there and we're orthodox christians and we think christian nationalism is a bad thing and that's something that that's very difficult for them so they have to do they have to you know they they have to try to eliminate that ground yeah so tim as we're kind of closing down this conversation what um what words of hope would you give to the pastors and ministry leaders who are listening in who feel caught in between, you know, in, in many ways, um, especially over the last, uh, you know, few years, have felt this kind of tension when it comes yeah. to honoring Christ, preaching the gospel, reaching people who are far from God, and this Christian nationalism, which is, you know, kind of growing. Um, right. What what hope would you would you speak into their lives? Well, first of all, and I, I know you didn't set me up for this, sir. <laughs> I know you didn't set me up for this, and so this is. Uh, uh, but I have a book coming out next month called hope in times of fear. Awesome. And it's actually a book on the resurrection. It actually is, uh, it's, it, it, it basically doesn't mean I'm not going to say anything right now. I mean, I kind of want to say to you, it's coming out in a couple of weeks, read the book and it's everything I could possibly tell you right now. And, and <laughs> but it's about the resurrection and it does two or three things. It's about the fact that, uh, first of all, that the resurrection happened. So I just do one chapter on that. You realize, listen, how do I say this? Whenever you get worried about things, you know, I got pancreatic cancer, mm. right? So I was told that in May, uh, most pancreatic cancer victims uh, die within a year or a year and a half of diagnosis. I think I'll probably beat that. But the point is, how do you face that? Mm -hmm. Okay. If the resurrection actually happened, the resurrection of Jesus Christ really, really happened. Do you realize that everything's going to be okay? Do you realize that? Right. I mean, that that's huge. Anyway, that's only one chapter. That's the first chapter. <laughs> I put together stuff, you know, what makes me think it happened. Then what you have to do is you realize that the whole death and resurrection motif in the Bible, it's, it's the fact that resurrection only comes after a death. And I try to trace that through the entire Bible. Every single, I mean, how does Joseph become the person who becomes prime minister of Egypt and saves not only the civilization, but saves his family? Only through the death of being sold into slavery, actually only through the death of being 
being a, a jerk as a kid, a spoiled, <laughs> a spoiled teenage jerk who then, um, and, you know, and, and almost rightly gets his, even his father upset with him and all that gets sold into slavery, gets put in a dungeon. I mean, that's just one, you know, that's all through the Bible. Right. Is, is the resurrection comes after death. And I mentioned it earlier in, in a way, if you look at, if you want the, the locus classicus, the classic text on this, it's, it's a uh, Philippians two, though he was equal with God. He didn't count equality a thing with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, became um, a human and became a servant and was obedient even under the death of the cross. Therefore God hath highly exalted him. Mm-hmm. And basically I'd say everybody is on a trajectory one way or the other. Here's, this is the sort of the heart of the book. I'll just tell you this is blessings, success, prosperity that you embrace without God, without faith in God will end up becoming a curse for you. Mm. Okay. But hardship, difficulty, suffering, if you embrace, you know, with faith in Christ will end up becoming those curses will end up becoming blessings without God, without Christ, your blessings will become curses without with Christ. Your curses will become blessings. Death leads to resurrection of some kind of some kind. And therefore we can look at history and know everything's going to be okay eventually. Mm-hmm. And even right now, if we end up, if the evangelical church goes into a period of great trial, suffering, weakness, it'll be a time of refining. It'll be a time of maybe winnowing out, you know, mm-hmm. it may be a time where we can finally um, renew the church in some ways. So that's why when you ask me, <laughs> Give me some hope. I think I just try to do that. Um, that's basically the book. And so I, I, I know this isn't a promoting that book, but basically what we're talking about here is between these two books, the prodigal prophet was where I first started thinking about this and about what's going on in the country. And this, I course I wrote during a pandemic and while I knew I had cancer mm-hmm. and try and also knowing that there was going to be tough times ahead for the evangelical church. So it's, it's more, it, it's not exactly, you, you never see, see it as a supplement or a, a sequel to Prodigal Prophet, but it kind of is. Yeah, no, that's there excellent. You go. That's excellent, Tim. Um, love it. And uh, for those who are listening in, we'll make sure we have links to, to both of your books yeah, um, yeah. that we mentioned today so people can uh, take a look. And, and Although I should point out that the, my publishers changed the name of Prodigal Prophet to something. We put the word Jonah in the, in the, the title changed, so don't be put off. It's the same book. Okay, okay. No, you know, the, the publish, you know, you know, right, yes, the publishers yes. felt like Prodigal Prophet, you know, if you just say something called the something of Jonah, then everybody said, oh, Jonah, yeah. Right, right. So they, they changed the title on it. I always say that was confuses people. Yeah. But <laughs> just, just keep that in mind if you do the linking. Right? Yeah, we'll, we'll make sure we get that linked correctly. Tim, it's been such a pleasure to have you with us once again. Thank you for uh, just your wisdom and uh, just for all that, all that Christ has poured into you over the years and how many lives that you've touched and influenced and how many pastors are, are pastoring today because of the influence you've had on their lives. And we just thank you for speaking into uh, the church right now and the things that we're facing. So thank you for making time to be with us today. Thank, listen, not only is that kind, but to encourage you, this this kind of podcast is really important too. Yeah, so thank, thank you for doing your work. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you. God bless. God bless. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Church Leaders Podcast. Be sure to check out the other episodes in this series. You don't want to miss out on the full discussion. 
Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss any of our interviews. We'd appreciate it if you could take just a few moments to let us know your thoughts by leaving us a review on your preferred podcast platform or sending an email to podcast at churchleaders.com. Your positive reviews and ratings help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. So until next time, this is Jason Day encouraging you to love well and lead well. You've been listening to the Church Leaders Podcast. For articles, videos, and free resources that will help you lead better every day, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.